You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm not sure if this speaker over here is working or not. Um, kind of seems like it's not. Maybe it's just aimed oddly, so when I speak softly, I'll step over this side so everybody over here can hear me. <clears throat> the Gospel of John, chapter 3, we're going to read verses 30 through, actually we'll read verses 27 through 36. John, chapter 3, verse 27 through 36. Beginning verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set this seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice before you this morning in the salvation that has been granted to us in Christ. We thank you for a glorious and marvelous Savior who has affected so much on our behalf and done so much, not just in us, but for us, on our behalf. We thank you for the salvation that we enjoy in Him and for the privilege that it is to gather together with each other today to worship Him. And it is our joy also to have your word before us. We pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to it that we might be partakers of this wonderful word of life, and that we might behold in it wonderful things. Thank you again for your word, and we pray, O oh, Spirit of God, be our teacher here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if that got corrected or not. It just sounded like it did, but we'll just press on. I'm going to start with a question this morning. What would you say is the measure of greatness? A man or a woman's greatness. What is the measure of a man or woman's greatness? Now you might rightly say, well, the answer to that question really is going to be another question. And the other question is going to be this. What do you mean by greatness? And who's measuring greatness and by what standards? Because really there are two different standards of greatness, are there not? There is the world's idea of greatness, the world's standard of greatness, and there is God's perspective of greatness. And the two really are mutually exclusive and have nothing to do with one another. God has a standard of what makes a man or a woman great in his eyes, and the world has a standard of what makes a man or a woman great in their eyes. And the two are entirely different, and the paths to those two different goals are entirely different as well. If God has a standard of greatness, then there is a means of achieving that greatness in God's eyes that the world would never recognize. And if the world has a standard or an idea of greatness, there is a means of achieving that greatness that will not land you at biblical greatness. So if there are two goals, there are also two different paths to each of those 
uh, two different paths, one to each of those different goals. You cannot use a biblical means to achieve worldly greatness. And you cannot achieve, achieve, achieve biblical greatness through a worldly means either. Let me give you an illustration. What quarterback, what NFL quarterback in his right mind would say, you know what, I am content to not be the starter for this team. I am happy to sit on the bench and get less every year for my salary and to allow the other guy to get all of the accolades and the awards and the recognition and to have his shot at the glory and to stay the center of the stage. And I am content to simply let him get all of the other contracts and the endorsement contracts and the big money. I just want to spend my life really pointing people to him. And I would be content if no announcer in the face of the planet ever mentioned my name or recognized that I existed. And even if they did come up and interview me, I would simply say to the reporter or to the commentator, you really need to go talk to Joe, whoever he might be, the starting quarterback, because he is the man. Don't give me any any recognition whatsoever for what I do. I want him to receive all the glory. What quarterback in their right mind would do that? He wouldn't be on the team for very long, would he? No, he wouldn't. And what CEO, if he wanted to become the or what employee of a corporation, if he wanted to become the CEO, would be content to sit by and let one of his competitors receive all of the attention and the accolades and the recognitions and the glory and all of that, and for himself to say, I'm content to let him get all of the attention that is directed toward me. Let him receive it all. He can increase, and I am content to just decrease. What CEO aspiring person would say that? Nobody would in their right mind, would they? They wouldn't be aspiring for the chief executive officer position for very long if they did do that. So obviously the means to worldly greatness is different than the means to biblical greatness because in the world's eyes there can only be one top dog. There can only be one person at the top of the food chain. There can only be one person who's recognized as great for that position. And if that recognition or position is given to a competitor, then somebody else necessarily loses out. You can't have two top dogs at the top of every organization. In the kingdom of heaven, it is much different. It's much different because Jesus said the rulers of this world lord it over each other. The rulers of this world seek to have the preeminence and the prominence and the greatest of positions. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven be the greatest. And if you want to be great, then you have to be a servant of all. That's the paradigm or the paradox of Christian living. You want to be great? Then serve other people. And the more you serve, the greater you will be in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it may not ever be recognized here on earth on this side of eternity. But in reality, the more you serve, the more you make less of yourself and more of Christ the greater you will be in the kingdom of heaven. Two totally different ideas of greatness, two totally different roads to those ideas of greatness entirely. John the Baptist was a perfect example of the biblical concept of greatness. He was a man who every time somebody came to him, never took any glory or laud or honor to himself, but always pointed people to somebody else, namely Jesus. Always Jesus. John was a servant who was content if nobody knew his name, nobody knew who he was, nobody ever gave him any glory, recognition, or honor, as long as those people lauded it all upon Christ. And yet Jesus said, of those born of a woman, there's never been a greater man than John the Baptist. He's the greatest man born of a woman. And yet John never received glory for himself, never welcomed that glory, and always directed people to Jesus Christ. And that is truly what made John great. And we're looking at his testimony, which we just read at the beginning, in the end of John chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. And you remember all of this came up because some of John's disciples noticed that Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. Jesus was gaining in influence. John was waning in influence. People were leaving John. They were going to Jesus. And that created for them a problem. 
They could not find any reason for joy or satisfaction in those results because in their minds, the advancement of the truth meant the advancement of John the Baptist. And the greater he was in the eyes of people, then the greater was the truth. And so they had gotten to a point in their ministry where they had lost sight of the message, which was Jesus, and began to focus almost exclusively on the messenger. And they actually saw Jesus as a threat to their ministry. And they came to John and they say, remember the guy that you testified to on the other side of the Jordan River? Well, he is baptizing people and the whole world, everybody is going to him. Now that was a case, that was a reason I should say, or a cause of great joy for John the Baptist. He didn't see that as something that caused him anxiety. He saw that as good news. And he begins to give his perspective in verse 27 through 36. He answers their dilemma or their their consternation over this. And you remember last time we were together, it wasn't last week, Dave was here last week. Last time we were together, I gave you kind of an outline of the verses 27 to 36. 27 to 29 are John's reasons why he must decrease. Verses 31 through 36 are the reasons why Jesus must increase. And right in between that, those two, in verse 30, is that statement, He must increase and I must decrease. So verse 27, John tells his disciples, look, God Himself has determined the scope, the influence, and the success of my ministry. No star rises or falls without God's notice. God Himself has determined or decreed and set the limits to my ministry. And nobody can have anything unless God has granted it to him. Remember that? And so because God has not granted me this ministry, therefore, I do not have the type of popularity and influence that Jesus had. And I'm content with that. Then in verse 28, John gave a second reason for his own decrease, and that was his own message. He had foretold this. He said to them, you yourselves know and have heard me say I'm not the Christ, but I came ahead of the Christ to prepare the way for him. I'm not the light, but I'm one decrying in the darkness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then the third reason he gave was in verse 29, that the success of his own ministry demanded that he decrease and that Jesus increases. And that's where he gives the bride bridegroom analogy and the friend of the bridegroom. He himself was the friend of the bridegroom. His job was to bring the bride to the bridegroom, present them, and then to fade out of the, the limelight back into the darkness, as it were, and let all of the attention shine upon Jesus, the bridegroom. And that is what John had done. And that is really the, verse 30, is really the summation of the bride-bridegroom analogy. He must increase and I must decrease. All of the attention has been on to me to this point. I have brought people to Jesus. I pointed them to Him. Now my job, my role is to step back out of the way and to fade into obscurity and to let Him have the preeminence. Then verse 30, that is why He must increase and I must decrease. Now let me tell you something. If you're still looking for a verse this year, to make your life verse or your theme verse for the year, or to put it on your mirror, or to spend time reflecting and meditating on it, might I suggest verse 30? He must increase, and I must decrease. Isn't that a great verse? He must increase, and I must decrease. you got to admit, it's easy to memorize. you got the memorization part of it down just from listening to me. You don't even have to try and memorize it to make it sort of your year's theme verse. I'm convinced that if every Christian, if every believer, if every one of us who professes Christ and knows Christ, if we were to simply live by that motto, how much would change? All self-seeking and self-striving and vainglorious attempts at drawing attention to ourselves would vanish. Every attempt that we make to get the preeminence or have the prominence or get the greatest of positions it would vanish. We would stop that. To, to live in a way that would be able to say, for I'm, I must decrease and he must increase, would be to make Jesus everything. To make him everything and to be consumed with the renown of his name and his glory and to direct people from Him, it would be to magnify Christ 
to minimize myself and to serve others. Isn't that true? Paul said the same thing that John said basically in Philippians chapter 1. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how Paul would say what John just said. He must increase and I must decrease. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the substance of what you and I are called to do. It is to magnify Jesus so he must increase in all that we do and we must decrease. I was tempted this last week just to spend the whole sermon on verse 30, sort of unpacking it. But I decided not to because I figured that the whole context of what we're looking at really explains verse 30. And so as we're working our way through it, we're going to see what it means to allow Christ to increase and us to decrease. So we're going to start with verse 31. We're going to start working our way through this. There are five reasons between verse 31 and verse 36 why Jesus must increase. Five things which really demonstrate his preeminence. Verses 31 through 36, what John is arguing is this. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is before all things. He is above all things. All things are subservient to Him because He is of supreme value, supreme worth. He is not just the Son of God. He is God the Son. And since He is God the Son, He is therefore deity above all things. He is preeminent. He must have the first place in all things And for all of eternity, he will have the preeminence, the first place, because of who he is. And then John basically gives, in verses 31 to 36, five things about Jesus which are indicative of his preeminence. And I want you just to see all five of them Then there, and then we'll begin to work our way through them. In verse 31, the first reason is because Jesus is from heaven. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32 is the second reason because Jesus speaks the words of truth. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The third reason is because Jesus has the spirit without measure. Look at the end of verse 34. For he gives the spirit without measure The fourth reason is because Jesus is sovereign, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then verse 36 is the fifth reason, and that is because He offers and gives and grants salvation. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, and he who does not believe in the Son and obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Because He is from heaven, He speaks the words of truth, He has the Spirit without measure, He is sovereign, and He offers salvation. Those five things indicate the preeminence, the preeminence, the supreme worth and value of this one that we call Jesus Christ. So let's begin with verse 31, point number one, that he is from heaven. He is from heaven. Look at verse 31 again. He who comes from above is above all. Now John in the passage is comparing himself to Jesus. And so he is saying here, Jesus existed prior to coming to earth here. He who comes from above, and the above is heaven, as as evidenced by the end of the verse, when he says he who is from heaven is above all, The above is heaven that John is referencing. Heaven, the dwelling place or the throne of God. Where God is, that is where Jesus came from. Now that statement in verse 31 could not be said of any individual sitting in this room or any other individual who has ever lived, that they came from heaven. You and I did not come from heaven. No prophet, no priest, no king, no other man or woman who has ever lived can say that they existed prior to coming here to earth. 
This is only true of one person and one person only. That is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who had an existence prior to coming here to earth. Now to contrast that teaching, the biblical teaching, what John is asserting here, and what the, as you're going to see in a moment, the New Testament uniformly asserts, contrast it with Mormonism. Mormonism teaches and believes that all of you had an existence prior to coming to here to earth. All of you were born as spirit babies in heaven between Father God or the Heavenly Father and one or many of his multiple wives that he has in heavens now. And all of eternity he has spent procreating and procreating and the wives have been spent in a spate of perpetual pregnancy birthing spirit children who now come into this world and are born into this world as spirit children, but all of us existed prior to coming to here on earth. I just sat down, I don't know, several months ago with a couple of Mormon missionaries and asked them this very question, do you guys believe this? And of course, I knew they believed it, and they affirmed that they did indeed believe that. Now, you, according to Mormonism, may not remember your previous life. That doesn't mean you didn't live that previous life in the glories of heaven before coming here as a spirit baby. That is inherently, totally, ultimately unbiblical in every sense of the word. You had no existence before coming to here. In every sense of the word, you are earthly. You are of this earth. You are conceived in this earth. You were born in this earth. Your only existence has been bound to this earth. But not so with Jesus. Jesus existed prior to coming to here to earth. Now, in the Gospel of John, John's hope is to show us that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Not just the Son of God, which He is, but God the Son. And in order to show us that Jesus is God the Son, He must also show us that Jesus existed before he came here, because if Jesus came into existence in the womb of Mary, if that was the beginning of his existence, then he cannot be God, can he? God can't have a beginning. And if Jesus is God, then it means he must have eternally existed from eternity past, because God can have no beginning. If God were to have a beginning, it would mean that somebody or something created him. Or that he simply popped into being out of nothing, which is a logical absurdity. Some people say, well, maybe God created himself. God couldn't create himself because then he would have to exist before himself in order to create himself. And if he already existed before he created himself, it seems quite absurd that he would need to create himself to begin with. So God, by nature, by necessity, must have no beginning. And if Jesus is God, then it must be true of him as well that he had no beginning and that he existed before he came to earth here and that he existed in heaven and that he came from heaven. Now listen... In order to prove that Jesus is God, the fact that he came from heaven and existed before he came here must be true. That is a necessary requirement to prove that he is God, but it is not sufficient to prove that he is God. Because angels also existed prior to Jesus coming here, didn't they? So that's not sufficient just to say he existed before he came here, therefore he's God. It's necessary to say that. That must necessarily be true. But you must go further than that in order to prove that Jesus is God, which John will right here in this very verse. So Jesus came from heaven. That is the teaching of John all the way through the Gospel of John. And John constantly reiterates that from the lips of Jesus himself, from the lips of John the Baptist, and from his own lips. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that has ever been made. He's the Creator of all things. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John chapter 1. In John chapter 3, you see up in verse 13 of this same chapter, 
Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is the Jesus' favorite term for, term for himself. And Jesus there is speaking of himself, saying, I came, descended from heaven. Nobody has ascended into heaven, but I descended from heaven. He came down from heaven. Turn over to John chapter 6, and I want you to follow a theme through the gospel really quickly. And we're not going to spend too much time doing this, because we will get to these verses in your lifetime and mine. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 33. Jesus said, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. You say, what bread is he talking about? He's going to explain that here in just a second. Look at verse 38. I'm just letting you see the references where he speaks of his own coming from heaven. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look at verse 50. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then look at verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. Over and over again, Jesus hammered that point at home. I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. The Father sent me. I came down out of heaven. Now, everything you just read would have been incredibly offensive, offensive to the audience that he was speaking to. They would have said to himself, at best, if this is not true, at best, these are the rantings of a madman. At worst, this is the worst blasphemy we've ever heard. To suggest that he came down out of heaven sent from God? Come on. That would make him, logical conclusion in their minds would be God. is making himself equal with God, which is, His claim was that, and that's why they tried to stone him anyway in John chapter 5. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Jesus just hammered this constantly, this theme, that He came forth from heaven, sent by God, and that His origin was nothing short of heaven itself. Look at John chapter 13, verse 3. This is in the upper room. Before Jesus wiped the feet of His disciples, verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, sounds like chapter 3, verse 35, doesn't it? Knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God. Look at John chapter 16, verse 28. I came forth from the Father... I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. John chapter 17, verse 8. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed on you whom sent me. Now turn back to John chapter 3. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus asserted his own preexistence. John the Baptist here in John chapter 3 asserts Jesus' preexistence. And John, the apostle who wrote the gospel, asserts in his own words, Jesus' preexistence. Jesus existed prior to coming to here on earth. That is a necessary truth. It's also the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus, or Paul said, The first man was earthly, the second man heavenly, came forth from heaven. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, He who descended, or he who ascended first descended here. He who went or descended from earth to heaven, before he ever did that, he came from heaven to earth, to here. He who ascended first descended here to the lower parts of the earth where you and I are at. He came from heaven. 
Colossians chapter 1, which when I gave that to Dave to read this morning, he says one of my favorite passages. Mine too, he is the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, all things, in order that he might have the preeminence. He existed and was the creator before he ever came here. Hebrews chapter 1. He existed, he himself is the exact representation of the nature of God, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He created all things, and then, through the rest of Hebrews chapter 1, the author goes on to quote the Old Testament to show what the Father said to the Son before the Son ever came into the world. To which of the angels did he ever say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever? To which of the angels did the Father ever say, I will give you the nations as your inheritance? Which of the angels ever received that from the Father? None. No angel did. But to the Son, the Father did that. And because the Son was loved by the Father, the Father gave all things into His hands. He existed prior to ever coming here to earth. Now at this point, we have to be careful to say that it is not the humanity of Jesus that always existed. And I'm making a clear distinction here because this is important, and I'll show you why in just a second. We want to be theologically accurate. Jesus as a man did not always exist. His humanity did have a beginning, but His deity never had a beginning. He always existed. Now remember what we affirm about Jesus from John chapter 1. It was a while ago, so I'll remind you of this. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He is fully God. He is fully man. He's not half God, half man. He's not once was God, became a man, now he's becoming God again. He is fully God, fully man, united in one person. That person did not come into existence in the womb of Mary. The human body, the human nature that deity was united with came into existence in the womb of Mary. Jesus' humanity had a beginning, but as God, He never did have a beginning. There was a point where the Word became flesh. The Word took upon Himself flesh. The Word who eternally existed with God, as God, took upon Himself a human nature, took upon Himself a human body, and His humanity did have a beginning, but His deity never did. His person never did. There was never a point where the person of Christ came into existence. At the incarnation, the only thing that came into existence was the human nature which was joined with the divine nature and the human body in which Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, lived. But as God, he always eternally existed. Do you understand that distinction? It's a key distinction. You say, is it really, is it really important to get those things down and understand the essence of Jesus' pre-existence and the fact that he was God and why that makes him God? And by the way, when John says he who is from heaven is above all, he's speaking there of Jesus' sovereignty, verse 31. He is above all people. He is above all things. He is above all nations. He is above all. To which of the angels could that be said? You are above all things. None of the angels. None of the angels is above all things. But Jesus Christ himself is. He who came from heaven is above all. Now, earlier I said it is necessary to prove the deity of Christ to show that Jesus preexisted, but that in itself is not sufficient. And it seems as if John knows this. Somebody hearing him say, He who came from heaven is the Son of God, God the Son. He came down from heaven. If somebody heard him say that of Jesus, He came from heaven to earth, somebody might rightly conclude, well, was he an angel then? John eliminates that possibility by saying, He who came from heaven is above all. That's a statement of absolute, unqualified, unequivocal sovereignty over all things. The Father loved the Son and gave all things into His hand. He who came from heaven is sovereign. That could never be said of any angel. It was never said of any prophet, priest, or king. But it was said of Jesus. It is not true of any angel that He is above all. But of Jesus, 
He is above all. See, that's John's way of saying not only did he come from heaven, not only did he exist prior to becoming here, but he is above all things. That makes him God. And that's John's point. He wants us to understand who it is that he's talking about, that he is God. Now, is it necessary that you and I understand these things about Jesus being fully God, fully man, and all of that? It certainly is, particularly when you're, if you're going to spend any time speaking to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, if they come knocking on your door, you got to be able to nail this stuff down. Just It was just actually less than a couple weeks ago, the Jehovah's Witnesses came through my neighborhood. Now, for those of you who may not know this, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ is a created being, that God created him, and then Jesus created all other things. So he's a created creature, and that God used Jesus to create everything else. So the only thing that God the Father created was Jesus. Jesus created everything else. Jesus had a beginning. He once was Michael the Archangel, then he came to earth here, and now he exists eternally as a spirit creature. That's Jehovah's Witness doctrine. And you can always tell when the Jehovah's Witnesses are making their way through your neighborhood because they drive real slowly in a car and they're dressed really nice. And they usually start on one side of the street and they work their way down and they get out in twos, go up to the door, spend a couple of minutes, um, go back to their car, get in it, drive real slowly to the next driveway. And I was home on my day off and they never come on a day when I'm wanting them to come because it was sun shining out, it was about ready to start raining and I wanted to get my garden in before the rain hit. Never a good time. They never show up when I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, I wish the Jehovah's Witnesses would show up today. <laughs> They never show up then. They always show up when I've got something else to do. I'm on my way out or I'm under the gun in some way. And so as they started to work their way down the street toward my house, I was going over in my mind, should I, should I ignore them? Should I blow them off or should I share the gospel with them? And of course, it took them long enough to get all the way down my street that I, I finally got convicted. I thought, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm here, I'm home, it's providential, I'll try and share the gospel with them. So they got all the way down to my street, pulled up, and they started. we started chatting with one another. And um, in the process of the conversation, trying to share the law and the gospel with them, we finally kind of got off of that subject onto the person of Christ. And I asked them what they thought they needed to do to go to heaven. Of course, for them, it's by works. They have to work their way, and they're never sure. They're never certain. But in their mind, Jesus was the ransom price for their sin. Jesus made their salvation possible. Now it's up to them to work. So they do their best. Jesus does the rest. That's their mentality. And so as we got to that point, I told them, I said, you know what you really need for your sin because it's so weighty and so grave. What you really need as a sacrifice for your sin is not a God and not an angel. You need a God-man. You need somebody who's infinite. And that is what I believe Jesus was. He was the God-man. They said, well, we believe that he was just a God. And I said, I know you believe he was just a God. I believe he was actually God. And this lady said something to me that no Jehovah's Witness has ever said to me before. She said, you know what? you and I are really close to each other in our understanding of who Jesus is. We believe he's a God. You believe he's God. That's very close. (laughs) And I said, if I told you that I believe Jesus was a guy dressed up in a purple dinosaur suit that did a kid's show out of a TV station in South Central Florida, what would you say to me? Would that Jesus be capable of saving me? And she said, no, that would be absurd. And I said, The difference between your Jesus and my Jesus is the difference between my Jesus and the purple dinosaur doing a kid's show. We are not even close to one another on our view of who Jesus is. There is a vast difference between a God and God. And she was able to understand that and to see that. And then she said things to me like, well, who was Jesus praying to in the garden then? Praying to himself when he said to the Father? See, this stuff just irks me. I said, no, it wasn't. He was praying to the Father. We don't believe in one person being God who showed himself in three different ways. We believe one God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and they can talk to one another, have fellowship with one another, and love one another. That is why John was able to say, the Father loved the Son and gave all things into His hand. It wasn't the Father who loved Himself. It was the Father, God, who loved the Son, who was God, and gave all things into His hands. It also has implications and ramifications for our worship. See, when we gather here to worship, it is quite appropriate to sing songs of praise and adoration to Jesus Christ because He is God. It is appropriate to pray to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. It is appropriate to thank each member of the Trinity for what they did, for what they have done, and for what they will do, and for what they continue to do in your life. It is appropriate to ask the Spirit of God for things, ask the Son of God for things, and ask the Father for things. That is entirely appropriate. It is appropriate to worship Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit because the three are the one God. They have implications for our worship. They also have implications for us in all of our day-to-day and practical living. I would ask you this. Do you love the Trinity? Or when you think of God, do you just think of Father? Or do you picture all three persons of the Godhead as God? And when you worship God, do you worship Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You ought to worship Him that way. And we ought to serve Him that way. The fact that Jesus came down from heaven and was God also is a demonstration of incredible humility. Listen, to leave the glories and the comforts and the conveniences and the worship and the adoration and the majesty of heaven, to come to this sin hole, to dwell among people like you and I, is such a condescending step of utter humility that is beyond our ability to fathom or comprehend. If, if that alone does not take your breath away, then you don't understand one or two things, either heaven or sin. You either have no idea what heaven is like, or you have no idea just how sinful this world actually is. That is an incredible step of humility, that he who was rich, rich in the glories of heaven, rich in the majesty of heaven, received the worship and adoration of angels, and left all of the saints of glory in heaven to come here and to become poor, so that we, through that poverty, through him making himself nothing, and taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, that we might inherit heaven, that is, to become rich. He who was rich became poor for our sake, so that we, through his poverty, might be rich. He left heaven and came here to earth for me, so that I can leave earth and go to heaven to be with him. That is an incredible step of humility and condescension. It's amazing, is it not? That alone is worthy of worship. He has done more for me than anybody else could ever do or will ever do, and he is worth anything that he could ask of me. There's nothing that he could ask of you or I that is not worth it, that is not worthy of him after what he did for us. Incredible humility. Now look at the second half of John's statement. He who is from heaven is above all. That is his sovereignty. And we're going we're gonna to unpack the idea of Jesus' sovereignty when we get to verse 35. He who is from heaven is above all. And he who is of the earth speaks of the earth and is earthly. Verse 31. Now when John describes he who is earthly and of the earth, who is he talking about? He is talking about himself. Now remember in the context, John is comparing himself with Jesus. He came from heaven to earth. He came, left the glories of heaven and came here. And he is above all because of who he is. He dwelt in heaven and he came here. So he's above all. But it is not so with I. Not so with me, John said. I am of the earth. I am earthly in every way. And this is true of you and I. The only existence we've ever known is the existence here on earth. Conceived in this earth, born into this earth, the only experience we have ever had is earthly. It's not true of Jesus. It's true of us. And it's true of John. And John is there describing himself, his own origin, his own nature. It is as if John is saying, he is a man, yes, but he is the God-man. I am merely a man. He is above all and I am not. He is from heaven and I am of earth. And the difference between those two things is so vast, so incredible, so significant, 
that it should remove all doubt as to why it is that he must increase and I must decrease. I must decrease because I am of the earth, John is saying. He must increase because he is from heaven and he is above all things. Now you might say, but is it really true that John was earthly? Was he not a man sent from God? Was he not heavenly in many ways, divinely commissioned, divinely sent with a divine message? He was a divine messenger, God's prophet, God's man for the time, the greatest of all prophets, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, because John got to see things that all the Old Testament prophets only longed to see. Abraham, Isaac, Jeremiah, Daniel, David, all those men looked forward, never got to see the fulfillment. And then John steps on the scene to announce the arrival of it and the fulfillment of it. And John was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets in the sense that he got to see the culmination of all of human history up to that point. The arrival of the Messiah, the King of Israel, the prophet, the priest, the king of the nation, in the flesh, he got to see all of that as a divine messenger sent from God. In what sense is John earthly? We wouldn't use that term to describe John, would we? Earthly? Really? We would say he was a heavenly messenger. So was he heavenly or was he earthly? It depends, and it all depends, on who you are comparing John with. You see, John compared to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of his day, to the other teachers of the nation of Israel, like Nicodemus, he was heavenly. But compared to Jesus, he was mere earthly. And in this passage, he is comparing himself to Jesus. I am of the earth. J.C. Ryle gives a helpful analogy at this point. He says, a candle compared to the darkness is light. But a candle compared to the sun is not even a flicker or a spark. And that's what John is doing. Compared to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the nation, he was a heavenly messenger, a man sent from God with a divine mission, divine proclamation. But compared to Jesus, he was nothing. Now, keeping this in mind, John's own estimation of himself, which is really our estimation of ourselves, it would keep us from a couple of errors. One of the errors that keeps us from is thinking too highly of ourselves. To always remember, we are mere earthly, right? My sinful nature, my weaknesses, my frailties, my lacks, my lack of knowledge, my ignorance, my inabilities, all of those things plague everything I do. Everything I do. Every moment I study to preach, every message I preach is plagued and clouded with weakness, inability, inarticulateness, sin, fleshliness, all of that. Everything we do is tainted by the fact that we are of earth. Nothing we have ever done and nothing we as Christians have ever offered to God could ever be described as purely heavenly. Nothing. Because everything we do is shrouded by and clouded by the weakness of our own fallen nature. It was that way, it is that way with us. It was that way with John the Baptist. It's not that way with Jesus, which the rest of the passage is going to show us. It would also keep us from having an, an overly great estimation of people who preach and teach to us and faithful servants, right? It's very easy to look up to role models and people who are faithful and have done faithful ministry for years and are nationally known and write books and all of those things are good and we have our role models. You have some. I have some. I have role models that have gone and died and gone to glory, have written books and whose sermons I still listen to. I love them. But we always have to, have to remember that the best of men are still men at best. They are frail. They have feet of clay. They are sinful. They are fallen just like us. Their testimony is plagued by the lack of knowledge and inabilities and inarticulateness as weaknesses of sinful fleshly humanity. They are at best of the earth, all of them. And none of them can ever eclipse and none of them should ever eclipse Jesus Christ to us. Whatever eclipses Christ is a danger to us. Whoever eclipses Christ is a danger to us. 
And this was the mistake that the disciples of John the Baptist made. They looked at Jesus and they said, we can't let him eclipse John. John has been a man of the hour for so many months and years. John has been the person everybody's coming to. And John is saying, no, it is time for me to step back. I cannot eclipse Jesus. Because if I do, I'm a danger to everyone around me. That's what made John great. He was able to step into the background and let Jesus have the preeminence. He who comes from above is above all. He is sovereign. He is God. He is Lord. He is the creator. That is why he must increase. He must have the first place because of who he is. And I must decrease. Now, as you've noticed, we didn't get to point number two. We did point number one. These things, I think, are significant. As we reflect upon the glories of Christ, I think it's good to go slower rather than faster. And here's why. It is good for us to meditate upon things which are so heavenly, so glorious when it comes to the person of Christ. The reason for going through the Gospel of John was to come to appreciate this person, to get to know Jesus. That's what we're seeking to do. So we will take the second point, that he speaks the words of truth, because that comes out of the first point. It is because of who he is that he is above all, that his testimony is greater than John's. So we'll do that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for your Son and for what you have revealed about your Son to us in the pages of your Word. These are things which are beyond our ability to fully comprehend. We can apprehend them. We can grasp them slightly. But we cannot fully appreciate these glorious truths because they are infinitely beyond our mind. And yet you have revealed enough to us that we might honor and adore and worship and rejoice in our God who is three in one. We thank you that you have eternally existed and that you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Give us grace, we pray, to worship you as such to adore you as such, to serve you as such, and to constantly be grateful and remember all that you have done for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. You are our God, you are Trinity and unity, and we worship you this morning as such. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.